traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. September has been a, shall we say, memorable month in monetary history. Central bankers have been raising rates all year in a bid to combat inflation. But this was the month they all got serious at once. The European Central Bank kicked things off by increasing its target interest rate on September 8th. The Governing Council today decided to raise the three key ECB interest rates by 75 basis points. Then, on September 22nd, it was America's turn. Today, the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point. The next day, almost every other central bank seemed to join the party. Switzerland. Die Geldpolitik weiter zu straffen und den S&P Leitzins um 75 Basispunkte auf 0,5. Sweden. Igår att höja styrräntan med en procentenhet till 1,75 percent India. South Africa. Indonesia. Essentially, in September, investors around the world woke up to the reality of much higher interest rates. And it's been, uh, shall we say, a rude awakening. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Simea Keynes. And in this week's show, The Rate Shock. First, we'll look at which countries are smarting the most, like Britain. In the UK, there's almost been this sort of sense that uh, we don't want to see the pain of a recession now. We'd rather throw money at the problem and try and defer the pain. And then we'll head to Japan, where we'll hear from a recently departed member of the country's central bank board. Policymakers in BOJ should focus on inflation and unemployment rates rather than the exchange rate when conducting the monetary policy. Finally, we'll ask why policymaking looks increasingly haphazard. I think it partly reflects the sense that uh, macroeconomic policy over the last decade since the global financial crisis essentially didn't work well at all in the rich world. And what can be done to blunt the pain? Hello there, Alice. Welcome back, Samir. Yes, I hope you had a good holiday or what little of it you got to actually enjoy. Yeah, thanks. I actually uh, got COVID and returned to an economic crisis. So it was a pretty mixed bag. Right. There has been a lot happening in so many markets over the past few days. As traders seem to have returned from the Hamptons and Nice and wherever else they go on holiday and suddenly woken up to this idea that we're in an extremely different interest rate world to the one we've been in for the past 15 years since the global financial crisis. That's right. I was getting a little frustrated in July and August, dismayed that, you know, the bear market and huge financial market volatility might already be done. But it is much more exciting now that havoc has returned. 
that is both very money talks of you. And, and it's something I always said about financial journalism, that we're in a counter-cyclical industry. We're basically the only people in finance that, that really tend to enjoy these sort of periods. Thank you very much for, for staying on brand. I try. Well, look, there is a lot to unpack about what's happened this week. And to help us do that, we are joined by our boss, business affairs editor Patrick Fowles. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Samantha. So because there's a lot to talk about here, I think we should cut this chat into three parts by looking at why things have suddenly turned now, the idiosyncrasies of some of the big movements we've seen in the British pound, obviously, and in the Japanese yen, and what all of this portends for the health of the global economy going forward. Sounds like a plan. Great. So Patrick, why do you think markets are reacting so violently to higher interest rates now? You know, the increase in the interest rates that the Fed announced was not exactly a surprise. Yeah, I see it as part of the journey from denial to reality that's been happening over the last year, actually. So obviously, everyone knew the Fed was going to be tightening. And there's been a debate about how much and how soon. And what's really changed is expectations of where interest rates might peak have changed really quite substantially to about four and a half to 4.75%. Uh, by the end of 2023. And that's a big shift. Bond markets are adjusting. Step one of the journey from denial to reality is financial markets and central banks adjusting to where interest rates need to be. The next step is the real economy beginning to adjust. And, you know, there are some signs of that. In fact, the house price data just out this week showed a month-on-month decline in house prices for the first time in a long time in the US. And even the Fed is now forecasting that unemployment is going to go up. Now, the Fed does seem broadly aligned in telegraphing that it will do whatever it takes to get prices under control in America again. The question is what that means for the rest of the world. Well, exactly. And, you know, historically, the Fed hasn't paid any attention really to what impact its interest rates uh, have on the rest of the world. Its mandate is to focus on America quite reasonably so. Uh, But that means that usually huge ramifications when these uh, American interest rate cycles turn. And often it's emerging markets that tend to suffer the most when American interest rates rise. That's because the world still uses the dollar often to borrow and very often to invoice trade, which means their economies are are sensitive to US policy. And when American interest rates uh, go up, capital flows from the emerging world to America and also the costs of borrowing go up too. So typically it puts pressure on balance of payments and on currencies in the rest of the world and historically at least with emerging markets getting hammered the most. Right. And and when we discussed that in our August episode, our conclusion was that there were quite a few populous countries feeling pain as a result of these rising rates. So that's places like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Egypt. But actually, when you looked at the big economies as measured by GDP, like India, Brazil, China, they have been coping just fine. And so what seems to be happening now is that it's actually some of the richer countries who are hurting. Yes, some of the places that uh, traditionally got whacked, you know, India, Indonesia, Brazil, for example, are actually seeing um, their currencies perform relatively well. And that's for a variety of reasons. I mean, Brazil, it's because commodities are strong, which benefits its economy. And in the case of India and Indonesia, for example, you know, their position is probably better than it's been in the past. The domestic economies are growing fast and 
they have big currency reserves um, compared to in the past. And instead, the real um, victims of, of the turmoil are sometimes rich economies. And Britain is clearly in that camp. But you've also seen the yen fall very significantly because the Bank of Japan is wedded to pretty loose monetary policy. And you've even seen Korea see a big drop in its exchange rate and the central bank there is worried about imported inflation. So the overall picture is in one sense conventional that strong dollar, strong US interest rates are bad news for the rest of the world. Although the pattern of winners and losers within that is somewhat different from what we've seen in the past. Well, Patrick, thank you. That teases up very nicely to go into a bit more depth about both the UK and Japan. So we'll let you take a break and then we'll hear from you a bit later about what this means for the global economy and if anything can or should be done to blunt the pain in in these countries. Sounds good. So, Sumeya, I know you're on our daily podcast, The Intelligence, speaking about what's been causing all of the chaos in Sterling. But briefly, what do you make of what's happened? Yeah, a lot has been going on. So on Friday, September 23rd, the government announced its big mini budget, which included some short term measures. So help with energy bills. There were also big permanent tax cuts. Uh, They were worth around 1.5% of GDP. Around a quarter of the cost of those tax cuts reflected surprise tax cuts that hadn't been previously announced. There was no independent scrutiny from the Office of Budget Responsibility, which normally would publish a fiscal forecast alongside an announcement that big. The arrogance was pretty striking. And then the naivety. At one point, I actually suggested that someone might want to go on Reddit to try to drum up support for the pound. Turns out that hasn't happened. And then most recently, it's fairly astonishing that it seems to have triggered such market dysfunction that the Bank of England has had to intervene, effectively doing some temporary quantitative easing and postponing its planned quantitative tightening to the end of October. Just really, really terrible optics here. We spoke to Mark Dowding, a fund manager at Blue Bay Asset Management. He's been betting on the pound to weaken. And we asked him what he made of the situation. Yeah, well, where to begin, frankly? Um, I think that uh, by and large, one of the observations that's kind of struck us this year has been that um, in terms of the uh, sort of European economies and European policymakers, there's almost a a bit of an admission that we, we obviously have war in our continent, which is a very sad thing. But in the wake of that, there's an understanding that actually a recession is something that uh, is kind of an unavoidable sort of economic outcome as a result of the conflict and the move in energy prices. So in some regards, there's always been a bit of economic realism if we, we talk about other European capitals. But in the UK, there's almost been this sort of sense that we don't want to see the pain of a recession now. We'd rather throw money at the problem and try and defer the pain. And maybe the colliery of that would be higher inflation in the UK uh, over the medium term. So it's almost sort of uh, putting pain off to another day. Samir, what do you make of that? Do you think the UK is essentially throwing money at a problem and sort of blindly behaving as if the constraints that have emerged over the last year don't exist? 
So what Mark is talking about there is this kind of medium-term dynamic where the British government wants to essentially enact stimulus to stave off a recession. That expansionary policy is prompting lots of changes in asset prices. And in general, what the, the government is trying to do is it's trying to generate growth. The aim of this whole package that was announced on Friday 23rd was to unleash productivity growth so that ultimately these might end up paying for themselves. But essentially what's going on is that the government is trying to do the easy things quickly, tax cuts, and it's rejecting the idea that it might have constraints. And that is just sending a very bad signal about its credibility, its seriousness. And that is making investors less willing to hold British assets, hence the weaker pound. Now, we've been focused rather a lot on sterling, and it is very easy to make pound jokes, pound puns. Uh, thank you for that, uh, sterling. Um, but really, what we should all be paying much more attention to is gilts. Yes, you're right. Of course, a weak pound makes imports more expensive, which is not going to help Britain's inflation problem. But the rise in gilt yields, and gilts is the term people use for British government bonds, is really extraordinary as well. The jump in yields is the biggest five-day move since 1976, which is when the UK was bailed out by the IMF. And the IMF, by the way, is now warning the UK that it should reevaluate its plans. Yeah, I would say that the increase in gilt yields is, is probably actually even more important than the fall in the value of the pound. And yet the move has been absolutely enormous. Um, at one point, the yield on a 10-year UK bond was 4.5%, which is 1.5 percentage points above where it was on the morning of Friday, September 23rd. Now, at the same time, there are expectations that the Bank of England is going to react very aggressively to, to this fiscal expansion and increase interest rates by summer of next year to rise above 6%. Now, the consequence of these rising gilt yields and also these rising um, expectations of the bank increasing its interest rates is that the government is facing a very sharp increase in its borrowing costs. Because of the way that the Bank of England and the Treasury have managed quantitative easing so far, a higher rate from the Bank of England feeds through very quickly into higher borrowing costs for the government. All this is just throwing up massive questions about where things are headed, which Mr Dowding also cited as a reason he was betting against the UK. The way in which policy is being conducted both fiscally and monetarily in the UK does seem to stand quite different to what we're seeing in other jurisdictions. And on that basis, we've been inclined to look for a weaker pound. We've been inclined to look for gilts to continue to underperform. But I would say that um, the recent market reaction that we've seen to the uh, the mini budget is certainly sort of throwing up all sorts of uh, short term uncertainties and volatility. Uh, I have to say, though, that um, in doing so, where interest rate markets are moving to discount interest rates rising to 6% in the UK by next spring. I'm more inclined to think that uh, that seems to be a bit of an over-exaggeration. Uh, I really think that the economy will struggle to withstand that degree of interest rate tightening where the Bank of England to deliver what the market is currently starting to discount. Yeah, I think I'd agree with, with Mark's comments there. The idea that the UK could withstand rates that high seems difficult. I mean, if you look at, say, UK household debt, it's a little bit lower than it was uh, around the time of the financial crisis, but you're still talking about it being over 80% of GDP. 
Uh, the economy is very, very sensitive to house price movements. More than half of UK wealth, if you look at it that way, half of assets is is made up of land, which is the, the bulk of the sort of cost of housing. And that's extremely sensitive to changes in interest rates. And uh, that's on top of the fact that the UK has relatively short maturities on its mortgage debt, unlike the US, uh, which is something we've obviously discussed on Money Talks before. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen analysts predicting 10, 15 percent drops in nominal house prices, which would be extraordinary. And certainly if the bank goes as far as investors expect, I think it would mean an an ugly recession. I feel like the big question here is, you know, to what extent is this a self-inflicted problem or is what's happening in the UK just a nasty version of what's happening to other industrialised countries who are having to raise rates in part to defend against imported inflation as their currencies weaken against the dollar? Yeah, there is a UK specific component. Yields on British government debt have risen by more than in comparator countries. I think the lesson here for the UK is that it might be forgivable to make mistakes when market dynamics are good, when times are good, but we're not in that situation right now, right? Rates are rising everywhere and investors are not being kind to those governments who make mistakes. After the break, we are going to look at what's happened in Japan, which has also seen its currency dramatically weaken. But before then... It's the time of the show where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. And we think this week is a great time because we've got an amazing briefing looking at Xi Jinping, which is also coinciding with the launch of our first narrative podcast, The Prince, in which our colleague Su Lin Wong attempts to find out more about the man who may soon be ruling China for life. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you are already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should consider signing up for our newsletters, both Money Talks and The Bottom Line. They're available at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So now I want to take us to another island nation, Japan, which has also seen its currency fall quite a lot. Mike, I know it's very hard to get you interested in stories about Japan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think people don't pay enough attention to Japan. And I think what happened in Japan last week is particularly interesting in the context of everything else going on. But essentially, it's now the lone central bank in a major developed economy that's not raising interest rates and not telegraphing interest rate increases to come. In fact, it's keeping rates negative. It's continuing its program of quantitative easing. It's buying bonds to keep rates low. There's absolutely no change to our stance of maintaining easy monetary policy for the time being. We won't be raising interest rates for the time being. 
And we saw that in the wake of that announcement, the yen weakened and the government intervened directly in currency markets to prop it up, which is slightly confounding when you think about it. At the same time, the Bank of Japan is essentially printing money to engage in quantitative easing. The government is moving in completely the other direction and trying to prop up the yen. Yeah, there's sort of a parallel in the UK in the way that the Bank of England has just intervened to buy long-dated government bonds and is postponing its plans to sell lots of long-dated government bonds in in a month's time. Not quite the same, uh, but sort of similar. It is, but as we'll get into a bit later, the underlying economic fundamentals are quite different. And to stick with the, the yen intervention, it's being viewed as very much a mixed bag in Japan. In my reporting for the paper this week, I spoke to Gushi Kataoka. He's just left the Bank of Japan's rate setting committee, and he was known for being a very outspoken dove, the sort of head of the inflationist camp. I asked him what he thought about the weakening yen. Although sudden yen depreciation isn't favorable for Japan's economy, policymakers in BOJ should focus on inflation and unemployment rates rather than the exchange rate when conducting the monetary policy. And you know, it's interesting. I think there's a temptation when you look at sliding currencies to to just view them negatively. But actually, a weak currency can sometimes be an asset. It's sometimes the best way to take the strain of financial conditions changing globally. And it's especially good for some parts of the economy, for example, for exporters. Japan isn't as export reliant as it once was, but there are still perhaps ways in which the Japanese government could take advantage of the situation, which is also something that Mr. Kataoka mentioned. We are not in a situation where we can stably achieve a 2% inflation rate. Under these circumstances, the Bank of Japan's monetary policy is likely to be maintained and the trend of yen depreciation will continue for some time. In such a situation, the Japanese government should consider taking advantage of the weaker yen. In other words, the Japanese government should implement policies to support the weak yen. There are policies to increase exports, increase assets denominated in yen, expand inbound demand, support the expansion of private consumption and capital investment and reduce the impact of rising import prices due to the weak yen. Even though the BOJ has maintained that it will keep interest rates negative and continue its QE, Mr. Kataoka seemed to feel like it wasn't going far enough to take advantage at this particular moment. Throughout my five-year time as a board member of the Bank of Japan, I have continued against these challenges, calling for clearer commitments and bolder monetary policy to build on them. Unfortunately, I couldn't get another board members to agree with their opinion, as you know. I feel sorry for this. But isn't there an argument to be made that while Japan might not be suffering from as dramatic inflation as the rest of the developed world, it's not completely immune to the situation? Mm, yeah, it's it's not completely immune, but I think it is sort of distinctly different. And Japan's economy hasn't yet returned to pre-pandemic output levels, which is in contrast to uh, Europe and especially to America. Inflation is still way lower than it is elsewhere in the world. Japanese CPI is running at about 2.8% uh, year on year in August. That's, you know, that's slightly above the BOJ's 2% target, but 
core inflation, which strips out food and energy prices, is is even lower than that. So I think in a, in a lot of ways, the BOJ's policy seems pretty sound. Um, what doesn't seem quite as sound in that context is, is intervening to then prop up the currency on the other side. One of the big questions is not why Japan is an outlier here, but the sort of impact that a weak yen could actually have on investments outside of the country. And if major financial institutions in Japan who are regular buyers in markets around the world suddenly withdraw, those effects could be felt a long, long way away. But the impact of this rate shock is sort of milder or, or mixed on Japan's economy, right? Um, you know, there are, there are sort of pros and cons, whereas things seem perhaps a lot more unequivocally bad for other countries. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a good thing, but mixed sounds right to me. Um, Mark Dowding, the fund manager we heard from earlier about the UK economy and his decision to short sterling, he'd also shorted uh, Japanese government bonds earlier in the year. I asked him what he made of the two countries and their underlying fundamentals. I should mention that I told him I was doing my part to help the Japanese economy by recently purchasing tickets to visit and and a hotel um, now that the country's COVID policies will be relaxed for international travellers. I think that uh, although there are some similarities, there are profound differences. And ultimately, we think that um, Japan is in a very good place to ultimately um, weather a period of yen weakness. And ultimately, if we do see a, a change in policy from the Bank of Japan, we do actually think that the yen could actually go from being one of the weaker currencies globally to, to one of the stronger currencies. And, and so structurally, we, we'd actually become much more bullish on the outlook for the yen from an FX perspective if we do see the policy turn that we're looking for. So I, I commend your choice of uh, going on vacation to, to Japan, and it's a, a great place to spend a wonderful time. But I, I hope you're getting there pretty soon. Or if you're not, I, I hope you're buying your yen already in preparation for the break that's coming up, because... Although uh, the yen is weak for now, it could, it could easily be turning stronger. Whereas in the in the in the case of the UK, it would seem that uh, weakness in in the pound could be much more sort of structural in, in in its dimension. Yeah, I think that got to a very interesting point that the yen and sterling are basically down by the same amount against the dollar year to date, more or less. But the UK has had this enormous increase in interest rate expectations that we've been talking about. You know, the the UK ten year government bond yield is up uh, from 1% to uh, over 4% this year. Japanese yields basically haven't budged at all. So really, it's no contest as to which position you'd rather be in. And the Japanese government seems like it has quite a bit more room to manoeuvre right now. Okay, so the Fed has set off this reckoning, and we've gone through some of the idiosyncrasies that have made the situation in Britain and Japan more extreme. So I now want to bring Patrick back in again to get his thoughts. Patrick, hello again. Hey, Alice. I guess the big question I have for you, having listened to Mike and Sumeya, is that the rate shock has hit different countries first or hardest, depending on their specific situation that makes them more exposed. But to what extent should other countries look at what's happened in Britain and feel, say, a sense of foreboding? You know, Britain is struggling now, but higher rates are going to be painful in a lot of places. So was it just the first domino to fall? Well, I think Britain has some unique qualities at the moment. Its credibility is very low post-Brexit. It has a long track record of subpar growth and mismanagement in the private sector now. So there are some distinct elements of Britain's problem But at the same time, there are also some universal themes there. And one is the tension between 
very loose fiscal policy and, and government borrowing and monetary policy. And if you like, they're going in different directions. And what we're seeing in Britain is the markets try and deal with that uh, reality. How many other countries might be in a similar position or have, have a sort of similar force uh, in action? Well, clearly, Italy is one candidate where bond yields have moved. And in some ways, it shares the terrible growth record of Britain over the last decade. But I think you can posit more generally that more countries, I think, will face this tension between a kind of newly permissive attitude towards government borrowing and the need to raise interest rates by central banks. And I would add that, you know, if we do see uh, the economy slow and also we see the energy shock continue, it's very likely that governments will want to borrow more and will be under pressure to help people and companies more and to do more bailouts. So I think that that structural tension between higher monetary policy and loose fiscal policy, the inversion of what's happened over the last decade or so, that structural tension is, is a feature of the world economy now and is really one of the big themes in the coming years. Yeah, I think that that tension between fiscal and monetary policy uh, is, is fascinating because you've got this almost inversion of what you had for a, a very long time after the financial crisis and the sort of decade that followed, where you had often very loose monetary policy or attempts to loosen monetary policy while uh, fiscal policy was quite tight and people were quite worried about the idea of, of loosening things there. Uh, what do you think has changed? Why do you think it, it works this way around now, Patrick? Well, I think it partly reflects the sense that uh, macroeconomic policy over the last decade since the global financial crisis essentially didn't work well at all in the rich world. Um, so there you had uh, relatively loose monetary policy and lots of quantitative easing and relatively tight fiscal policy. So what we've seen is that flip. And, you know, that's sort of in some ways quite understandable. But the second thing that's changed also, I think, is that public attitudes towards the safety net that governments should provide has changed a bit too, courtesy of the pandemic and now the energy shock. And I think it's just going to be harder for governments particularly if there's a recession coming, to say, you know, you've just got to suffer and this is what the economic cycle does every decade or so. So I think it's both a product of the kind of failures of the last decade of macroeconomic management and also, I think, a change in political and social attitudes towards big government. Yeah, but I think in the UK, that's really going to come to the fore. I mean, at the moment, the the situation is that the government wants to implement tax cuts and it doesn't want to announce specific spending cuts because it knows that those will be incredibly unpopular. So it's trying to have its cake and eat it. And it's all going quite badly wrong, obviously. It's interesting to think about how aggressively we sort of run into some constraints, though, you know, the reaction of the, the guilt market to public borrowing in the UK has been very quickly to make it look kind of infeasible. Over the past decade, governments had sort of tight fiscal policy and central banks were constrained by the lower bound. But now central banks are kind of constrained as well by very high inflation and governments quickly appear to be being constrained by the, the economic reaction to their expansionary policies. So, if we do have to go through this period of economic pain to bring down inflation, it does seem as though there is less that policymakers can do to intervene and save the day, perhaps, than there was in the past. 
The interesting point for the US specifically is that actually the financial system looks quite well equipped to handle that economic pain. The banks are extremely well capitalised. There hasn't been sort of a massive leverage binge in sort of sectors of the economy outside of the government. And so perhaps the US can sort of handle that economic pain by itself. But it does seem as though it will be harder for policymakers to sort of ride into the rescue. Patrick, what do you make of all this? Do you think that governments being expansionary and central banks tightening might constrain policymakers more than they have been in the past. Yeah, well, if you think about it from a government's point of view, the bond market vigilantes are finally back with a vengeance. But at the same time, you have citizens whose expectations, I think, have changed quite dramatically. And government's job will obviously be to try and mediate, if you like, between the two and come up with some middle path. But I think it's it's going to be fraught. Well, I'm thoroughly depressed, even more so than I was already. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, shall we turn to our stats of the week? Alice, do you have anything that could cheer us up? I don't, I'm afraid. Uh, My stat of the week this week is half, which is the share of SPACs. Remember those, the special purpose acquisition companies that merge with private firms to take them public? So half of them have only six months left to find a deal. Uh, They usually have a two-year search period. Um, And if they don't find a deal, they are going to liquidate and have to give all their money back to investors. So you've already had 11 SPACs liquidate since August And essentially, SPACs are sort of one of those assets that was really frothy in 2021, but have been completely wiped out by the market plunge and market volatility uh, this year. So the death of the SPAC is my stat of the week. Something else that's died off but may be reborn is actually my stat of the week. My stat is uh, 169,800. That is the number of people who arrived in Japan last month in August. That is down 93.3% from the same month in 2019. I think those numbers are going to flip pretty quickly with the weekend and uh, with my visit being counted hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a recovery one. We might be able to bring that back as a positive money talk stat a little bit later in the year. Yeah, that's fairly positive. But I'm going to finish up with a very gloomy stat, uh, which is 1300. According to moneyfacts.co.uk, on the morning of Friday, September the 23rd, there were around 4,000 residential mortgage products available to British house buyers. On early Wednesday, that had fallen to below 2,700. There's been this huge shock to, to the mortgage providers, everyone scrambling to adjust their offerings. Great. So sort of death and destruction of uh, financial assets uh, is the theme this week. But at least Mike is getting to go on holiday. That's, I think we can all agree, the, the most important thing of all. Our thanks this week go to Mike Dowding and Gushi Kataoka. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us. Please send us a less gloomy statistic. Please, a positive statistic. Just to me at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our editor was Kim Gittelson. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. <laughs>